Thank you so very, very much. Let's take our Bibles. And we're headed to the book of Psalm, where we were last week. We're headed to the first one. Last week we were in number two. This week, let's back up and let's do number one. Psalm chapter one. As you're turning there, let me just share with you a story of what happened to an individual who came from England a number of years ago. He's a preacher who came to this country, didn't know much about America as a young man when he came here, and he describes what happened to him the first weekend he was in the States, and it happened to be in the beginning of January of a number of years ago. It was January 1st when I arrived on my first visit to the United States. I turned on the television and saw a picture of the like which I had never seen before. It was the rear view shot of a row of big fat men in tight pants bending over in such a fashion that they appeared to be putting intolerable strain on those said pants. Behind them stood a man who seemed to have lost his temper completely. He was yelling and shouting, apparently because the other man had his ball and he wanted it back. Eventually, after much shouting, they gave it to him. He promptly gave it to one of his friends, who ran a few steps and was treated to an awful beating by some other men wearing similar tight pants but of a different color. They were apparently very sorry about their behavior because after they had beaten them up, they gathered in a small group to pray about it. They were not sincere, however, because they went straight back and did the same thing again. After repeating this whole outrageous procedure about ten times, the man with the ball suddenly threw it about sixty yards to another man I hadn't noticed before. He caught it, ran a few yards, did a funny little dance, and the crowd went wild. I thought I had stumbled on some religious festival and was completely mystified until someone started to explain what was happening so that this newly arrived Englishman could understand. It appeared that the quarterback had so effectively faked a handoff to his running back that the defensive line and linebackers had played the run, leaving the receiver wide open to catch the pass and go in for a touchdown. And it all happened because the defensive players chased the man without the ball. The moral of this story is don't be confused and make sure you don't get faked out. You know, it's funny to have that happen, but it's not funny when it happens when we gather for worship. And there's a lot of people gathering for worship at this time, this morning, some already earlier today, who are confused about a number of things. They're confused about God. They're confused about theology. They're confused about their eternal destiny. They're confused about what is truth. And so what God did to help people in years gone by is God appointed that what he wanted to do was help people when they come to worship to know what to do and how to do it right and how to have the right attitude and the right approach. So one of the sections of Scripture that he wrote to give some of that truth was the book of Psalms. Psalms is designed to be a hymn book, a book that is part of the regular worship service for the Jews in the temple. And you take it and you use it in your life to worship. It is a part of many of our hymns. They also include the Psalms and many of its teachings. But the whole idea was that it was for our benefit. Now, unfortunately for us, when we approach Psalms, sometimes we just take it for granted and we don't really understand how impacting and important and how they're put together. As I mentioned last week, the book of Psalms is not put together chronologically. The oldest Psalm that was written by Moses is going to be found later on in the book of Psalms, called Psalm 90. That was written around 1440. One of the latest psalms written, right around 400 B.C., is Psalm 126, I believe it is. And so the psalms aren't put in chronological order. They're put in an order by editorialists, by worshipers, who, as they looked at it, they said, wait a minute, let's put these in order based on some of what they're saying and what they're trying to get across. That brings us to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They're poetry. You'll see in Psalm 1 it's poetic. Just like last week we saw Psalm 2, how it is broken down in stanzas, like your hymn book is broken down. You can see some of the parallels and some of the acrostics in some of the Psalms. Well, Psalm Psalm 1 is designed with the idea of poetry, and it's going to do a lot of different trilogies and things of that sort, walking, standing, sitting, and things of that sort that we'll see. 
But it was put in this place because of its message, because of its content. It was designed, Psalm 1 and 2, to catch the reader as they come into worship and get into a mindset, whether in public or in private, and they open up this hymn book to worship. It was put there to cause them to pause and to think, what are they doing? What is this worship really about? Why am I here? Why am I doing this? And so Psalm 1 is loaded with some information that the writers of it, the editorialists, decided that this was one of the most impacting psalms and a good place to start. In fact, they start off with blessed. Do you remember somebody else preaching a sermon that started off with blessed? Anybody? Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And so they start off with this emphasis on blessedness. And then it goes through the psalm and it talks about you have two choices to make. You have two paths to choose. Do you remember somebody else preaching a sermon that started with blessed and then focused on two paths, a straight and a narrow path, two foundations to build upon, rock or... Okay, do you remember that person? Okay, Jesus did that. So this psalm is filled with all kinds of information that is to catch the worshiper to pause and to think, what am I really doing? What, is, what am I doing with my life when I walk out the doors? I'm making one of two choices that are totally opposite of each other. I'm either living a life of somebody who is blessed or somebody who's cursed. I am living a life that is either godly or ungodly. I am living a life that's following his way or my way. That's Psalm 1. That's the challenge that the, the author and then those who put it together want us to pause and to think when we come to worship before we get into all kinds of things. So maybe this should have been at the beginning of the service. To stop and think, what am I really doing? How am I really approaching things in my life? Am I really godly or am I following the path of the ungodly? So as you break it down, he starts off with this psalm talking about and describing, first of all, the godly person. And he gives us in verses 1, 2, and 3 a description of what a truly godly person is. Watch this as you just read it through and look at it. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he doth meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. So what he's giving us is a simple description that I'm going to break down this way. The godly person is described by God as, first of all, seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. I take you back to the very fact that this is all about worship. This book was put together about worshiping God. And he's starting it off with the idea that the person that God wants to bless. And so that person who God wants to bless is obviously in this era of the writing of Psalms and others, somebody who is seeking to please the Lord. Somebody who is coming before the Lord, wanting to worship him. And he says, blessednesses, it's a plural. The blessed is supposed to be emphatically plural. God will bless this person over and over the one who first of all is seeking after him. Now if we go to a whole bunch of other passages, we'll see that what this means is definitely they have to be seeking the Lord. They have to be what is called in the Old Testament a righteous person. Somebody who is wanting to be right with God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, but the righteous seek the Lord. They run into it. The Lord loves the righteous. That's the one he's going to bless. We read, for it is you who blesses the righteous man. It doesn't come to everybody, as we saw last week. He doesn't bless the unrighteous. He hates what they're doing and will judge them. But he talks about here in many passages how he will bless the righteous person. And so we start off with just that idea of coming to worship. There's got to be a mindset there that indicates they want to seek the Lord and then the blessednesses truly identify that the type of person who is going to enjoy this is going to be somebody who is seeking after the Lord. 
Somebody who wants to be right with God. Bringing that to modern 2023. That means the person that God wants to bless is somebody who seeks him for salvation, who wants to be right with him, who wants to have a relationship with him, not just go through motions of worship. He is saying to those who gather on modern Sundays, if you start with this psalm, stop and ask yourself, am I here because it's just I had to? Am I here because it's the thing to do? Or am I here because I really want to learn from the Lord. I want to meet with the Lord. I really want to magnify the Lord. I want to be right with the Lord. I want to learn from the Lord. So the godly person, the first description of this passage is they are one who is seeking the Lord. Then number two, they are separated from the world. He says very clearly, as we already read, blessed is the man that doesn't do certain things. If he's going to be right with the Lord, then he's got to get away from certain things. And he describes them in this text by saying that they walk not, they stand not, they sit not. He isn't talking, and let's be very clear about it, he isn't talking about having no contact with people who are not saved. He's not talking about isolation from the world. If that's the case, then the Great Commission goes out the window. Where to go into the world and preach the gospel. Where to go all places. So we have to have some contact. Light is most beneficial when it has some contact with the dark. The salt has to have some contact in order to, re, to bring about healing, to make it palatable. So he's not talking isolation, but rather what he's talking about is being careful and being cautious with how much you listen to, how much you get involved with the world around us. Being careful and cautious it's the idea of your boat has to be in the water, but you don't want the water in the boat. You have to be in the world, but you don't want to have the world in you. And so what he's saying in this text is he understands that as a man thinks, so he is. So I want to be careful what I'm thinking about, what I'm focusing on, what my plans are, what my goals are. And we know that all of us have weaknesses. We all have struggles. We all have battles and challenges. We all have some besetting sin. So blessed is the person that puts up the barriers, that is careful about those besetting sins. In fact, what he says in this passage is be very careful in contact, in how much you associate with the ungodly, the wicked. That's where he starts off with verse 1. So he's talking about those who just aren't following the path of God. Then he says, be careful of those who are sinners. And he's elevating and saying they're not just somebody not following God, but they're somebody who habitually, who normally goes against the Word of God, who isn't following the Word of God. The idea of somebody who is engaged with the idea of lots of different evil patterns or sinful patterns. Then he ups it up one more and he says... Those who not only aren't doing right, but those who mock those who are doing right. Those who ridicule those who are doing right. He's saying that there is an element in our society, there's lots of people that are generally, like a lot of us, you're generally are doing the normal wrong things. And there's an element who are getting more involved with wrong. Then there's an element who are really rebellious against God in the sense that they reject God and they want everybody else to follow their path in rejection. All are sinners. All are under condemnation. Where we were at one time at those different levels. And he warns us and he says you got to be careful that in contact in that regard that you don't walk with those people. That is the idea that you're just moving along and listening to them and letting them influence you. He says and then you got to be careful because some people not only walk but they stand with them. Standing has the idea of tolerating things. Standing has the idea of being in agreement with it. And though you're not actively participating, you're passively approving of it. And he says, and then you've got to be careful because that person may end up sitting with them to the point that they're participating. Before we go any further... Is this a possibility this could be happening in the life of a believer like you? Okay, as we look through this and we start saying, okay, what kind of things could he be talking about? 
be careful getting around somebody who's greedy. Be careful about getting around somebody who's tearing down your family values. Do we live in a society that's tearing down family values? Be very cautious about those who have no respect for life. Be very careful you don't get caught up with their thinking. Because if you allow their thinking after a period of time, you're tolerating it. And then after a period of time, if you're not cautious, you're engaging in it. Does that not picture the modern church who has heard for decades now abortion is okay? And those under 30 in the modern evangelical church, the majority of them now say abortion is okay. What about this idea of prejudices? About being biased against different racial colors or being biased against different classes of society? You get around somebody and you walk with them who is extremely bigoted. After a while, do they, can they influence you? So all of a sudden, you start thinking that way. And then next thing you know, you make a comment that is totally uncalled for. What about this idea of being angry with somebody? Somebody in your family or outside of your family has offended, has done something against your family members. And you listen to the hurt. You listen to the ranting and raving. After a period of time, you listen to it so much, all of a sudden you're engaged with the ranting and raving. And then you get to the point where you aren't forgiving. That person who offended, who's even tried to reconcile, And so he warns us very clearly, be very cautious. We're all susceptible of being in contact and all of a sudden we get influenced by it. And he says, blessed is the person who understands that what they need to do is stay away from some of this. That what they need to do is understand that there are lots of people out there that are encouraging things that do not line up with the Word of God. And just because they're in the majority, it doesn't make them right. We need to follow the Word of God, even though we hear it over and over and over and over again. Even if your friends are telling you, it's okay to have sex before marriage. It's okay. I mean, you try, you don't, you know, you've got to figure this out ahead of time if it'll work. And you hear it so much that after a while, even folk in a Bible-believing church come to the point where in their dating, it's not that bad. All of a sudden, they're participating in it. And they're ridiculing the old fogies who say it's wrong. It happens in a lot of areas of life. And no matter how many people say it, the issue is you go back to the Word of God. You don't practice worldliness because God hates the worldliness. And you realize that even if it's acceptable in our society, we are separating from that which God says is wrong. And because we understand that if we don't say it's wrong, in time we get involved in it. We first think it when walking, and then all of a sudden we're tolerating it, and the next thing you know... We're doing it ourselves. And so he warns us. In the New Testament, it is loaded with warnings about a separated life, which is not popular in churches like this to preach anymore. It is not popular to say, be careful in your entertainments that you're separated. Be careful, be careful in what you watch when, it's, when you're getting inundated with immorality when you're getting inundated with language that is contrary to God's requirements of using not his name in vain. He says, be careful. But we have a modern society that says to us, it's just a movie. It's just on the internet. It, it, it won't make me think that way. And God in his wisdom says, you've got to be careful. You've got to set up parameters on what you're watching. You've got to set up parameters on where you're going. You've got to set parameters that make sure that you are not exposing yourself or your family or your friends to that which is forbidden. God says, listen, if sinners are enticing, don't get involved with it. 
God says, come out from among them, that is, the unsaved who are practicing ungodliness, be separate. He says, touch not the unclean thing, and then I will be your father to you. I will give you blessednesses. God's word, he says, listen, don't even keep company with another believer who is advocating adultery, who is advocating greed and covetousness, who is advocating other forms of worship. We can get to God, and, and it's in the evangelical church. Under, uh, uh, between 25 and 30 percent of the modern generation are saying you can get to heaven by somebody else than Jesus Christ. In churches that are preaching the gospel, that's idolatry. He says, beware of somebody who is, a railer is somebody who has uncontrolled anger. Be careful of somebody who's a drunkard, of an extortioner. Don't sit down and fellowship with them. Keep yourself separated. Now, talk with them. Sit and say, hey, listen, here's what the Word of God says. And confront, yes. But fellowship is this idea of that you're, you're there participating and going along with it, showing toleration on a long-term basis. I, I want to remind you that 1 John 2 is still in the Bible. It is still from the mouth of God that says, love not the world or the things of the world. If any man loves the world, loves the world, love the Father is not in him. And he goes on and describes this world, lust of the flesh, lust of the pride of life. He says, be careful, stay away from those types of things. That you and I, and he gives example, you and I have to understand that we need to have parameters and barriers lest we become corrupted by it. He warns us. He gives us illustration of how it happens. So he says, the person that comes for worship, who is coming in a public fashion on the Lord's Day, Old Testament would be Sabbath, today is Sunday, we come, the typical person walks into the auditorium or the temple and says, I'm good because I'm here. And he says, wait a minute, no, no, no. I'm not looking at your presence on the outside. I'm looking at your heart on the inside. What do you love? Where is your heart? Are you seeking me? Are you showing that you love holiness and hate worldliness? Then he gives another idea here. Oh, by the way, this is what I wanted to point out. We need to have the attitude of the psalmist. The psalmist who says, when it comes to right and wrong, I don't want to be close to evildoers because it's going to keep me from doing the commands of God. He's warned, I don't want to be near them because he understands. The psalmist understands is, hey, there's right and wrong the way we treat one another. There's right and wrong how our values. The world says to you, the most important thing in life is to get rich, to get things. Has that permeated our society? Yes or no? Yes. To the point that when, when we say, hey, young person, when you're choosing your career, first and foremost, make sure that whatsoever I do, I do all for the glory of God. Or is your priority, what can I, where can I make the most money? Is there anything wrong with making money? No. But the love of money is the so we need to have a worldview that says, I need to glorify the Lord. In all that I do, in how I act, how I work, how I worship. I mean, I work places. Is there a tendency in the world to say, do as little as you can get by with and get as much as you can? And as a believer, our tendency should be, I am here working primarily for Jesus Christ. So I want to give my very best. And you're going to be pressured not to do it. But you say, here, I'm for the glory of God. You can apply this time and time again. Point is, godly people are people who understand you need to separate. But we don't not only get away from something, we go to something. He says, you're, not, you're separated from the world, you're seeking the Lord, and you're going to be saturated with the word of God. How did he put it in this passage? His delight is what? In the law of the Lord, and he what? He meditates on it day and night. You're saturated with the word of God. 
what he does is he's saying, okay, instead of being driven by what the world says, I'm driven by what the Bible says. The law of the Lord literally is the Torah. When, when you go back to the Hebrew, that's the word. But the concept as you go through, and that, the Torah was the first five books. The concept throughout Psalms, though, was it included all of Revelation. And even as we come to modern, we're understanding this to say, you know, my delight is the entire Bible. Everything that has been revealed since the Psalms, before the Psalms, and with the Psalms. The word delight is a plural verb. His delights. This is, this is the thing that really, you know, tickles this person. The godly person, his delight literally is, I want to see what's here. I want to get into it. And he stoops and peers into it with the desire that he really wants to get everything he can. He wants to understand it. Wants to know it. He's the person who, he's interested in the word of God. It's a person who takes pleasure in reading the Word of God. The person who has a craving for the Word of God. And he says, this is the type of person that I want to bless. This type of person who meditates on my Word. It isn't the idea that, okay, what I'm going to be doing here is for 24-7, I'm going to be thinking nothing but the Bible and reading nothing but the Bible. And all I'm going to do all day long is memorize Bible. I won't study my lessons. I won't go to work. I'm just going to be Bible, 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 Bible. That's not what he's talking about. He isn't advocating that. But what he is advocating is the idea that in our life, in our daily life, throughout our daily life, we are meditating on the Word of God. The word literally means to mumble to yourself. Do you ever get around somebody who is talking to themselves? And you wonder, what in the world is wrong with that person? You will see that with people my age. We lay something down. And we don't remember where we put that child. And, we're, and we mumble to ourselves, where did I put that? What is that? Where is that? I've got to retrace every one of my steps. Where was I? I forget where I was two minutes ago. Okay, that's the idea of this idea of meditating is that you are very fixed talking to yourself about it. It's the idea literally was used of the, ch- the cow who is in the field chewing. And what does he do with his cud? He doesn't eat like we do at McDonald's, okay? Get it down so we can keep on moving. What does the cow do? He chews it, chews it, swallows it, brings it back up, chews it, chews it, swallows it. What is he trying to do? Besides get us sick, okay? He's trying to get everything out of it. Trying to get every nutrition he can out of the thing. That's the idea of this meditating, is that during the day, you take time for the Word of God. You don't just leave it there like the forgetful hearer and forget what you read, but rather you take it with you and you're applying it. You're living it. When you're challenged by somebody who is saying marriage isn't important, you're saying, but here's what the Word of God says. And you can respond that way. It has the idea of you being engaged with the Word of God. And what strikes me is the level of godliness is directly correlates to the amount of time you're in the Word of God. This is what God says. That the amount of godliness you want to attain is paralleled to what do you do with God's Word. How much effort do you give when it comes to God's word? And he's challenging the people who come to worship, who are already there doing the, the motions of the temple. He's challenging them to say, it's not about what you're doing right here in this room right now by showing up and going through your sacrifice. What I really want to do, you to do is take my word, love it, Live it seven days a week, 24-7. Share it, give it out, study it. Get under the opportunity to learn it. And yet we live in a day, we live in a, a time of church age where there are many who have all of a sudden reached a potential of far greater excellence in their own mind 
a far greater level of maturity. That their biggest goal is trying to figure out what is the minimum amount I need to be under the Word of God. How often do I really need to be under the Word of God? The Bible only says, only, you know, only day to be worship is Sunday. And it doesn't say how many times I need to be there. And yet it strikes me that the attitude of the godly person isn't seeking to find the minimum time in the Word of God, but is open to giving the maximum time in their schedule to the Word of God. Where are you? What are you doing? What are you promoting for your kids when it comes to the Word of God and loving the Word of God and studying the Word of God, getting under the teaching of the Word of God, taking it in so you can teach it to others, being willing to really grasp it so that you can pass it on. But isn't it true? There's a tendency for all of us, if we're not careful, I want to do the minimum. I don't want to be bothered by having to do more than just the minimum. That is not what he's advocating in this verse. He is advocating the idea that we are saturated by the Word of God. Not just hear it as few minutes as possible, but rather we take it, we love it, we go out, we live it, we come back, we learn some more, we go out, we memorize it, we come back, we say, give me some more so I can study at home. Is that true, teenager? Is that your attitude towards the Word of God? Mom and dad, is that your attitude about the Bible when it comes to relaying it to your kids? Senior citizen, have you adopted the idea that you know enough Bible that you don't need to read it anymore? You don't need to memorize it anymore? You don't need to meditate on it anymore? You got it all down. And he says, no, no. Blessed is the person that absolutely loves the Word of God. You know, we're living in a modern age where we're not challenged like they were. Somebody said to me this week, a profound statement, they said, you know, I don't know if there's enough evidence to convict me of Christianity if I were arrested today. Well, there was for back in the days of, of the early church. When Diocletian wanted to do persecution against the church, his thought was, I'm going to confiscate all the scriptures. It would have been a whole lot easier back then than today because back then not everybody had a Bible. Not everybody had a cell phone. Not everybody had that access. And so they only had a few printed copies. And so when he came into the region of Carthage and they were enacting this imperial edict of capturing scripture, there was a bishop near Carthage that decided that he wasn't going to surrender God's word at all. Others around him in the church gave the word of God up to the emperor. They, they, rather than my life, I'll give the scrolls away. Felix decided, no, these, these are more valuable to me and my people than even my own life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Job put it this way, I esteem thy word more than my necessary food. Felix had that attitude, went to his death, not surrendering the scriptures. And here we are, 2023, and we surrender it. Day after day, Sunday, services, no Bible studies, we voluntarily surrender it. I think we wane in comparison to some of those saints of old who knew what it meant to be blessed of the Lord. They sought him. They were individuals who separated from the world. They were individuals who were saturated with the word of God and they realized they were going to be sustained by the Lord. He says in verse 3, he said, his leaf also shall, he shall be like a tree planted by rivers. Now he's using poetic terms. He's using similes. He's using an analogy. He's using a picture 
that person who is going to be blessed, that godly person is like a tree. Literally, by the way, it's firmly planted. Is the, from the Hebrew. It's the idea that he's not just, you know, there nearby. He has been purposely put in a place where he is going to be able to receive everything he needs for sustenance. God has done that. God has done that in your life. God has taken every one of you who is born again and he has planted you in a place where you can be filled with streams of his word, of his blessings. And he says they have been planted by the rivers, plural, the flowing rivers, many of them, with the idea that it's not going to run out. You who are a believer are like a tree who's planted by God in a place where he can give you all the sustenance you need that it won't go low, it won't be wiped out in whatever difficulty, whatever weather comes against you, whatever season you're living in, whatever time of the year and storms that come about, you are deeply rooted where God can sustain you because you've been in the Word of God. And as a result, all of a sudden, here you are, you've sought the Lord, you've been saturated with the world, and God is able through that root system to give you the sustenance you need to handle anything. And he says, you're going to bring forth fruit. He's talking about that idea of spiritual fruit, fruitfulness. It's going to come in not right away. It's going to take growth. It's going to come at different times. But you're not going to be like the leaves that we see right around now in this drought. You see some leaves falling because they're drying out. He says, that won't happen to you. If you are saturated with the word, I'm going to provide for you everything you need. And I'm going to prosper what you do. Uh, people immediately say, okay, this is all about finances. And there's the, the, uh, that whole element of you know, health and wealth gospel. That means God's going to give us the biggest houses, the fanciest cars, the biggest bank account, the best jobs that we get paid, you know, $500,000 a, a year for a job that we only have to work 10 hours a week. That's, that's where the world runs with this. That's where Satan would run with confusing believers to discourage them. The idea here isn't your fiscal, isn't your, your, your financial, your physical. It's the idea of what you attempt to do for God. It's the idea of spiritual prosperity. You know what he's talking about. You've lived that. You know the spiritual fruit you're hungering after. You know where you're saying to God, please God, give me this. Give me victory over my besetting sin. Oh God, help me to love that person who is very unlovely. Oh God, give me the boldness to share your word. Oh God, please help me at home to be Christ-like. Help me, dear Lord, to be an individual who shows kindness to classmates when they're mean to me. Help me to have an attitude of submission in my home, in my business place, towards the American government when I hear foolish things. Help me to be a forgiving person who isn't so angry by what's going on around us. Help me to be one who really trusts you. Help me to have a spiritual fruitfulness, a prayerfulness. You're going to prosper. He's going to feed you. He's going to give you the sustenance. Charles Spurgeon used this passage in a book that he wrote. And in this book, he tried to demonstrate it this way, that there's this tiny little fish swimming along the River Thames, huge London River. And this little fish is swimming along, and this little fish refuses to take in the river's waters in order to go through his gills because he's afraid if he takes in too much, he'll drain the Thames River. And Spurgeon uses that silly little story to say this, Oh, little fish. Take in all you want and all you can. You will never run dry the great Thames. What he's doing in this passage is he's saying, Christian, you are sustained by the Lord. He has got the grace, the strength. He has got the wisdom. He has got everything you need to be spiritually prosperous. Don't hesitate. 
Don't be reluctant. You're by this huge river of grace and provisions. Take it in. Suck it up. Drink it in. Rely upon it. And you will prosper. You will be nourished by the Spirit of the Lord. I can do all things through Christ who... That's the godly person. This godly person is also secure in the Lord. What I mean by that is simply this. Where he makes this comment, by contrast, the ungodly person, he will not stand, verse 5, in the, in the stand in the judgment. The idea is stand acceptable in the judgment. No, the godly person knows he's going to stand. The idea here is he's secure enough that he understands that he is going to be an individual who will one day be in heaven in the congregation of the righteous. It's an Old Testament concept of heaven. He's secure that he knows he's headed for the heaven. He's secure that he knows what's stated at the very end of the text. The way, he says, of the ungodly perish, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The godly person knows that I am in, in the Lord, therefore being in Christ. God knows all about me. God knows what I need. God knows what's best for me. And they are just trusting the Lord as they walk along. That's the godly person. That's the description that you have, the bulk of this passage, this message. And you look at it and you have to ask, okay, where does that leave me? Am I seeking the Lord? Have I practiced separation? Am I saturated with the word? Am I relying upon the Lord? Am I really trusting the Lord? And when you come to worship, Psalm 1 says, stop! Examine your heart. Is this you? Not just that you're here. Not that you're just doing worship. Is this you? Then he gives a very brief description here of what the other person is like. He says the blessed person, or the godly person will be blessed. He'll have trials, he'll have troubles, but he's going to have supernatural help. The ungodly person, ah, just quickly he says to him, okay, but the ungodly are not so. Now, what do you have to do to become ungodly? Here's, here's the rub. We don't have to do anything. We're already ungodly. For all have, there is none, no, not one. So what we have to do is we have to make effort for the godliness, but we have to do nothing, and this is where we're at. This is the worshiper who comes to the worship and goes through emotions. They remain ungodly. And in this text, he says the ungodly, they're just not God-focused. You get that from this very phrase where he says, after he talks about blessed, his delight, verse 3, very emphatic in the original, the ungodly are not like this. Like what? Everything above. They're not God-focused. They're not saturated. He makes it very clear. They're the opposite. They don't really care beyond going through the facade of worship. They really don't care about God on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They don't ever get into his word. They, they don't care about spiritual prosperity. They're only caring about physical, financial. He says the ungodly, they're not God-focused. He makes it clear that we understand and he's challenging all of us walking in this room. He's challenging and saying, you're going to end up hollow and empty. Unlike the godly who is a tree, what does he compare the ungodly to? Chaff. Chaff. Chaff is something that, that is understandable if you lived back then. If you were a farmer back then, which most everybody was, you'd grow your crop. And then you would cut it down. And then you'd find the highest place in your property where the wind could catch it. And you'd have a hard surface and you would grind down you know, the oats, the wheats. And so everything is ground down and you want the seed in order to use for your bread and whatever. But you got to get rid of all the other stuff. The stalk that was hollow but crushed in it. So you would take it and you would throw it up in the air and the chaff was empty. It would go away. It would, it would just be gone and form a pile over there until all the seed that you have, which you can use to produce, which you can use to reproduce, which you can use to sell. He says, 
That stuff, that, that's, that doesn't describe an ungodly person. The ungodly person is like this chaff. What do you do with chaff? Do you know what they did with it? They couldn't sell it. They would burn it. They'd burn it. It was hollow. It was wasted. It was worthless. So the whole idea is, this is what the ungodly live for. They live for stuff that's hollow. That when life is all done, when it's all said, what do they have to show for it? When they stand before God, what do they have? When their whole focus was houses and bank accounts and, and, and again, houses aren't bad. Bank accounts aren't bad. But if that's your whole focus, you can't take it with you. You end up empty-handed. And he says that's where the hollow, that's where there's the hollowness. But also, let's add to this, without, without playing it down one bit, the ungodly end up in hell. The chaff would be burned. In this text, he says, you're, you're going to not be accepted by the Lord. You're not going to be able to stand before the Lord accepted by him. Won't happen. He makes it very clear. You won't be in the congregation of the, sin, of the saints in glory. It won't, it won't happen. He ends up basically saying, you shall perish. Very clearly at the end of the text. The Lord knows those who are his, the godly. But the way of the ungodly, you're going to be cut off from God. And there's only one place in eternity where you are separated from God. Where Jesus would say, depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And you end up in hell. Jesus put it this way when he was preaching. So you gain the whole world and yet you lose your own soul. What good is it? What good is it? So the psalm, the writer, he's just been very blunt with us. He says you've got to make a choice. You're either one or the other. You're either going to be one who is going to enjoy the blessings or you're going to be one who is going to not. You're going to be one who has fruit or one who is just basically you've lived a futile life. And some of you, you have to choose that even this day. Blessings or cursings. Jesus did this, the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. Starts off with all the blessings, ends up with the two paths. You've got to make a choice. You've got to make a choice. And he's talking to a crowd that had a lot of mixture in it. They had a lot of unbelievers. They had a lot of the Pharisees, the religious people, who were all about the external, the mechanical. But Paul did something unusual as he expanded the revelation under the Spirit of God. He said there is also a third group, primarily two, Saved, unsaved. Godly, righteous, ungodly. Those who will be in heaven, those who will be in hell. But then when under the leading of the Spirit, he says, but amongst the believers who gather for worship, he said, there's two groups there. And he talks about it as he says, okay, the saved and the lost. He says, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They don't seek after God. They're foolishness. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually certain. Yeah, saved or lost. Then he said, but amongst the saved, there is either the godly or carnal believer. I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babes. So in the Christian church, he's saying there's also two groups. Of all those who come to worship on a Sunday who claim to be born again, you're either spiritual or carnal. Spiritual, you're seeking the Lord, saturated, separated, looking for sustenance. Carnal, you're saved yet so as by fire. There isn't that heart's desire. You're glad he saved you, but I want to do my own thing. So you have to ask yourself the question. Number one, am I even saved? Am I headed for heaven? If I am headed for heaven, what am I? Am I somebody who is really spiritual by God's standards or am I a carnal Christian? I close with this thought. You know what the continental divide is? Yes, no? All you geography people, you know what it is? 
basically it's that, that ridge line that says, if I can make it very simple, where water falls on this side or that side of the peak, it either goes west to the Pacific or goes east to the Gulf or to the Atlantic. The difference for that drop of water is where does it land? On which side? And then as it gathers with all the others, it flows into those rivers. You are facing a continental divide right now. What will you do with Psalm 1? Are you going to let the saturation of the Word of God, the sprinkling of the Word this morning, fall on this side of choice or this side of choice? What are you going to do with the Word? Are you going to let it flow into godliness or flow into carnality? You choose. You choose what you're going to do with God's Word. So, Father, as our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, Help us, each and every one of us, to determine right now what are we going to do with your word. No doubt we're here for worship. No doubt we're here because it's the thing to do. But what are we going to let you do with us? So as hearts are open to your spirit right now, I pray that you would move in them. I pray that you would challenge them. I pray for the youngsters, the teens. I pray that you would help them, the young adults, the young married couples. Help them to determine we're going to become saturated with the word, separated unto you. I want to be a godly person. For us old codgers, Help us to make the right choice of how we finish out our careers, our lives. Help us to leave behind a legacy of desiring you for spirituality. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and before I close with any further prayer, I would ask you this morning, brother, sister in Christ, are you going to choose to make a change in your life so you can be blessed of the Lord by making it very clear with an upraising of a hand that you are going to this week become a person of the word, an individual who is going to be focused the way God wants me to be. Pastor Wayne, pray for me that I would follow through with the decision of my heart right now that I would strive to be the godly person of Psalm 1. Here's my hand. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, 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 yes. God, you see the hearts. Help each and every one of these many to live according to their heart's content and desire right now. To be more dedicated, more focused on you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful afternoon. See you this evening.